This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Like many guests, I read about Amani in an article and knew we had to get her on PreserveCast, especially because of her background, heritage, and focus on using history to get minorities interested and engaged in careers in aquaculture. We're talking sustainability, environmentalism, history, and the Chesapeake Bay on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be chatting with Imani Black, um, who is the founder of Minorities in Aquaculture, uh, which is a really exciting program here on the Chesapeake Bay um, that has an interesting connection with heritage and preservation, and we're going to be talking about that. But before we get into all of that... um, as we normally like to do, we like to get to know um, our guests. So, Amani, talk to us about your background. Where'd you grow up? What got you involved in this line of work? Did you grow up on the Chesapeake Bay? And and we'll we'll define the bay for people who aren't familiar with it. But but what was what was your story as a as a young kid, kind of growing up, and how did this all come about? Yeah, um, it actually kind of all. I would say transpired when I was younger, like around seven years old. Um, Originally, I wanted to be an astronaut. And so (laughs) I was really invested in that. And so I've always kind of been like invested in sciences, but I took the astronaut thing like to an extreme, like was out in like my front yard every day with my telescope, my books all over the place. I ate freeze-dried food for two weeks because I thought that's what astronauts did. So that just shows you my dedication. Um, But then I kind of transitioned into um, just marine sciences. I went to a math and science camp actually at the same institution that I'm getting my my graduate degree from. Um, And I loved it. It was like right on the Chesapeake Bay, Um, It was looking at, you know, striped bass, uh, blue crabs, oysters, submerged aquatic vegetation, um, and just how all of those things kind of encompass the the bay and how um, in each week that you got to go, you would focus on one of those things and you would do a restoration, like restorative effort at the end of the week. So it was super hands-on. We were outside all day. And I just like, really, I really love that. And my mom likes to make fun of me because when I went there, I was super, super quiet, super nervous about it. When I left and she picked me up, I couldn't stop talking about all the changes that I was going to make at home uh, about how like we needed to wash our cars in the grass because we wash them in the asphalt, the, you know, the chemicals go into the bay easier and just things like that. So I've had a real passion for it since I was younger. I didn't actually know what I wanted to do per se. Um, One of my kind of bigger goals was to like move away from the shore for a bit. But so I kind of had to define um, kind of my focus in uh, marine sciences, but it's kind of always just been marine sciences and biology. So, um, and I love you painting this adorable picture of you on the front lawn pretending to be an astronaut. And I like the little (laughs) trivia about you eating freeze dried food for two weeks. That must've been, your parents must've been scratching their head. So, um, Talk to us about the Bay. So for people who aren't familiar, you know, we have people who listen all across the country, all across the world for that matter. 
um, and you mentioned the shore. And so there's the, sort of these like terms that make sense here in Maryland, yeah. but may not be fam- people may not be familiar with it. So what is right. the Chesapeake Bay? And then maybe talk to us about like where you live and what the shore means, um, yeah. which is an inter- interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear how you define it. But um, <laughs> so what is the bay? And 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 also kind of baked into that. Why does it matter? Yeah. Well, the Chesapeake Bay watershed is the largest estuary. It's like one of the largest estuaries in the world. Um, it's the largest like waterway in the world. I I, I believe, like, as far as, like, um, how many different bodies of, of land that it touches. Um, and it's a huge, you know, in this, like, kind of region on the East Coast of um, the United States, which is where I am. I'm in Maryland specifically. Um, you know, there's a lot of states that really rely on and have really relied on Chesapeake Bay for resources as far as seafood, navigation, just occupations, just things like that. So, um, you know, it's a really prominent coastal community and a lot of the communities that, um, live on the, the watershed are known to be heavily involved in commercial fishing and just their reliance in, in the fisheries just in general. I'm specifically, like I said, in Maryland, um, which some would say is like, the prominent state of the of the watershed, um, we you know we have Maryland blue crabs, which people say are actually Virginia blue crabs that just travel to Maryland during the summer season, uh, which you know is, it's always a debate. But there's a culture on the Chesapeake Bay that we take a lot of pride in um, what it stands for, and it really just stands for um, just the traditional occupations, marine occupations that have really kind of embodied the watershed. Um, and we just take, you know, a lot of pride in, um, what that stands for, for us and what that stood for just in history. Um, but also how other people, you know, come and enjoy it. You know, it's beautiful on a coastal community. Um, and there's a ton, you know, to do as far as like in nature. So I think it's just a huge attraction, um, for a lot of people. And a lot of people like just being on the water and, just kind of relaxing. <laughs> so speaking of being, and that's a beautiful way of describing the Bay. Speaking of being on the water, did you, I mean, you described, you know, your, your astronaut um, <laughs> desire yeah. as a kid, but did you grow up going on the water? Like how close do you live to the water now? Can you like, you know, from your, from your apartment, can you look out and see the water? Like, yeah. And, and I guess maybe by extension, are you on it regularly? Like, do you go out on the water? Like after this conversation, are you putting your big boots on and like heading out into the water? Um, well, yeah. So when I was younger, um, you know, my dad is super into fishing. Um, and so I grew up in Chestertown, which is just another smaller, uh, community in like on the Eastern shore of Maryland. Um, and so I grew up, you know, right near the Chester river. Like I was probably two minutes away from the Chester river bridge. Um, so, and my dad is a, is an avid fisherman. So, you know, we would go out early in the morning fishing, um, you know, at sunset, we'd go fishing. It was a family type of event, um, after church on Sundays, Um, so yeah, being, and a lot of my friends had boats and things like that. So, um, and then the science camps that I would go to would be out on the water as well. So I kind of, when you live on a coastal community, um, you know, there's a huge population of us that just like have access to the water. I mean, we're surrounded by water. Um, but the thing is, I think that's the difference between coastal communities and like, let's say cities, that are surrounded by water is that we know the water is there. It is like a part of um, a lot of things that we do. 
Um, now, you know, so for the last five years, I've, I was, a have been a commercial oyster farmer, just working in shellfish aquaculture, um, on the Eastern shore of Virginia and the Eastern shore of Maryland. And so, yeah, pretty much every day during those years, I was on the water, um, either, you know, at the hatchery, which is right on the water or when the seasons would change, I was out in the winter time on the boats, um, harvesting oysters, uh, out of our cages, you know, and that could have been, like any type of weather, rain, snow, sleet, anything, you know, you have a kind of a, I would say like a, it's not big, a small propane tank in like the cabin of a boat that's like keeping six people warm. That's not actually keeping six people warm, but, um, but yeah, now I'm kind of in this new phase of my career where I'm going back to school and I'm um, focusing on my nonprofit. So um, I don't really get out on the water for work. I'm, I'm working on that. Um, it's only a few days. It's not as much as I would like to, but the, the more prominent days I'm on the water, Water is when I'm going fishing with my friends, which is probably like every three days right now. <laughs> and so what is an average day for you? And maybe that's a good way to kind of start talking about minorities in aquaculture. But like, what are you yeah. and maybe even taking a step back, maybe I should we should do this, too, which is you you kind of mentioned for five years you were doing commercial oyster farming yeah. for people who aren't from. I mean, in Maryland, we hear about it all the time now. Right. But um what is that? How how does one farm oysters? Yeah. So, I mean, there's this whole um, industry that's not just, um, you know, related to uh, the Eastern Shore or, you know, the East Coast in general. Aquaculture is a global industry. Um, and so when, when I say farm, I just mean um, just going through the practices of aquaculture. So there's three different sort of phases that aquaculture kind of... Um, you know, encompasses, which is hatchery, nursery, and farm. And so hatchery is where, you know, um, baby oysters are are kind of uh, reproduced and they're cared for in their free swimming stage once they're ready to kind of set for um, the rest of their life. So like um, whether it's restoration or on the half shell, um, you know, that's when they go into the nursery and they're there for a couple of months. And then for the rest of their life, um, as they're getting bigger so that they can be on the half shell um, and get to the, that mature oyster kind of um, that size of uh, two to three inches, then um, they just sit on the farm and they just, you know, really uh, do a lot of really good things for our waters while they're in there. I think, you know, the average farmer probably puts out a million oysters at one time, even if they aren't sitting in there for years and years and years they're sitting out there for weeks which for an adult oyster they can filter up to 50 gallons of water a day so when you have that many oysters that are just cycling through that region of water it, it's still doing a lot of good whether they stay in there for a lifetime or not and so you're like moving you're when you're farming that or you're out on the water doing that you're kind of shuffling them between those different phases or harvesting them to then eat yeah. yes yeah mm -hmm. yeah so um Luckily for me in my career, I've, I've gotten a chance to work in all three different stages of aquaculture. Um, some at the same time, some just, you know, at one at a time as the seasons have just, you know, kind of gone on. But yeah, like that's just like really what f the farming kind of term means. It's just uh, cultivating oysters, but then also getting them to the point where they can be on the half shell. They're healthy, they're viable. Um, you're getting as much uh, out as you're trying to produce. 
Um, so just things like that, just like really doing a lot of animal husbandry in that sense. Interesting. And I love that you call it on the half shell because that basically for me just is the way you order them at the restaurant. <laughs> but obviously that that's also an aquaculture term as well. So, okay, let's take a quick break. Come right back and then go right into minorities and aquaculture. Talk about the organization, what it's doing, the amazing work that you guys are working on, how heritage plays into it, and how people can be supportive. Um, And we'll do that right when we come back here on PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, again, we're joined by Amani Black, who is the founder of Minorities in Aquaculture. We were talking all about um, what kind of took her down this interesting path um, to working in this unique field. Um, and you, among all these other really cool things that you've done, I guess in your spare time, figured out how to found um, a nonprofit organization. Um, so um, what is Minorities in Aquaculture? And maybe like, what's the, what, what's the goal? What are you hoping to accomplish with it? And then maybe we could talk about like heritage and minorities who do aquaculture, but let's, let's talk about the organization first. Yeah. Uh, I like how you said spare time because a lot of people would say, what spare time does she have? That's kind of just been a central theme uh, of my week these days. Um, but yeah, I, I started, um, minorities in aquaculture, um, kind of in the midst of, the social turmoil of 2020, um, you know, right in the middle of it. Um, I, of course, was affected by what was going on in, in you know, all over the world um, last year um, as a person of color. And I really started to think about, you know, well, how are my like spaces influencing me? You know, how are, um, how am I influencing them? You know, how am I showing up into the spaces, but also like, what am I, what am I getting out of those spaces, you know, emotionally and, and mentally. And so, um, I really started to look at aquaculture and, you know, although I really love what I do, um, I had to be real with myself and say, when was the last time you saw a person of color, like in a leadership role in aquaculture? And, I had really been kind of working through this since January of 2020, but it really wasn't until I was moved by the conversations of diversity and inclusion and then actually lost my job at the same time. I was like, oh, wow, like I really felt compelled to do something. And I, I'd never actually done anything like this before. Um, but I wanted to create a space for the demographic that I sit in. So I'm an African-American woman that's in Ankara culture, and I haven't seen another African-American woman doing what I do in any of my workspaces. The only minorities that I really saw and really worked with over my years is, uh, you know, African-American men, Hispanic men, but they were working it as like farm laborers. So that's kind of like the general theme of like the involvement of minorities in aquaculture is like low bottom of the totem pole type of labor jobs. Um, and the the kind of mentality that, that the guys had was that this is a good job. It's a physical job and it pays well. And 
you know, they didn't really have an interest in kind of the, the scientific background of aquaculture, which is totally okay. Um, so yeah, I wanted to create a space for women of color to come together, but also to just like support each other in this aquaculture industry. Um, I originally was like, well, maybe I'll just start it so that they, all of the women of color will come together and I'll just be able to find the women of color that I'm just not seeing just because I'm in Maryland. But then just during this process, I'm just really realizing that, oh, there is no list. Like, you know, I I've learned, I don't know if I, I kind of take it with a grain of salt, but from Maryland to Texas, I'm the only black woman that's involved in aquaculture, just in any form, which is scary to me as far especially because aquaculture is a huge you know industry and is such a center point for our sustainable seafood resource so yeah I wanted to create a space where women of color felt um supported to come learn about what aquaculture is but then also if they were interested in kind of all the aspects of aquaculture um they would have the career opportunities uh to be able to do that you know minority space um a a ton of different just barriers getting into marine sciences. And um, so I kind of wanted to identify what those barriers are so that we can start doing some active minority engagement. So it's not just about the support. It's about, you know, the financial things that, you know, people need, but it's also just about um, empowering, you know, women of color to be in this space because, you know, I've experienced not being encouraged to do biology or marine sciences because no one really looks like me in that space at the time when I was kind of growing up and when I was going through college and things like that. So I kind of just want to be a listening ear for people, um, but I also want to give people the opportunity to be able to connect with their their waterways um, and their environment in the best way that they can so that they feel compelled to just impact it in a positive way. I mean, it's a it's a it's a beautiful silver lining outgrowth of a pretty screwed up previous year, um, yeah. and uh, you know it's 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 heartening to see something so positive come out of some of that mess um, that was always there, but kind of bubbled to the top in a terrible way in 2020. Um, and so, what caught my attention from sort of this preservation and history side is. I thought there was this really beautiful, we saw, I read a profile of you in, in um, Baltimore Magazine, and, and really this beautiful way of sort of weaving the heritage of it together and sort of suggesting that, like, this isn't some new idea. We, you know, sort of this idea that we've always been here, yeah. um, which is something that we hear, like, on the LGBTQ side when we talk about that heritage. It's like, this isn't a new heritage. We've always been here right. um, is something that we've heard. And, it, and it, I think it's the, it resonated really strongly with minorities in aquaculture where it's like, this isn't some new idea. We've always been here doing this. And on your website, you go through, and it's cool, where you have yeah. this background just of you uh-huh. Going all the way. I mean, you're like one of them is like your great great uncle. Like I don't know where <laughs> that where that places him in time, but that's going right. way back. So what? It seems like that's a kind of a strong piece of it, which is interesting. Um, is where where do you see heritage and history and sort of the story of of black watermen and and water women? and minorities in aquaculture, how does that kind of tie into what you're trying to do? Yeah, well, in that time of, of just really starting um, MIA, um, I, I really got to learn about, um, you know, the influential African-Americans, just like on my website, that um, had really made an impact in the evolution of our commercial fisheries on the Chesapeake Bay. And I didn't know that there was that many names. And as a person of color who is from the Eastern Shore, I was like, oh my God, like I 
had no idea. And for a while, um, you know, when I was kind of going through the beginning stages of um, really being invested in marine biology, my family was like, where does this come from? Like, we're doctors and lawyers and dentists and, you know, parole officers and nurses. Like, where is this coming from? And then my mom started doing our genealogy. And so that's what's on my website is depth is like directly from our genealogy. Like we just copied and pasted it pretty much. Um, but yeah, I come from a 200 year long legacy of Waterman and I had no idea. And so it was just learning in that. I was like, wow, like, like you just said, like we this isn't something new. Like it wasn't something that was out of the norm for me to do. It was just honestly bringing my family back home in a sense. And so I really started to think about, well, how many other people have a tie to the water and they don't even know it. So the heritage really plays into, yes, like this isn't something that I'm trying to do that's new. It's really just trying to reconnect a demographic that's already been connected, but just in this new wave of commercial fisheries. Like I said, aquaculture is super important. Commercial fisheries have always been super important. And minorities have been a huge part just in, you know, women of color specifically, just in packing houses and in the seafood processing sector. But also like, you know, there was a a ton of African-American and just minority boat captains, skipjack captains, um, and just, you know, really leaders out on the Chesapeake Bay. And a lot of their lives, a lot of their hardships, a lot of their triumphs are not well documented. Um, and the ones that are documented are ones that have been written by like third person parties, not anyone who's like had first real accounts. There's a really cool organization, Blacks of the, Blacks of the Chesapeake by Vince Leggett. And I've just been so fortunate just to, you know, grow, have a growing relationship with him. But he has been doing, you know, history for the last 40 years about the, the minority presence on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, so it's a huge and rich history just within the unique history that commercial fishing is in the Chesapeake. And so I really wanted to um, tie that in because when you're talking about getting minorities that haven't had an opportunity to be out on the water or even just like looking at an industry that doesn't represent them every single day, it's important to show them that representation first and foremost. So it's like break kind of building the bridge slowly. So they just even take a step on the bridge and then we can grow from there of like, no, 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 this isn't something that like you should be scared to do or that you're not welcome to do. Like we kind of, we created the the table, the chairs, the rug, the room that commercial fishing is in. We were a part of that contribution. And so we have every right to sit at the table now. It's it's just such a it's such a wonderful thing to hear about how you know you're a scientist and obviously heritage and history matters to you and it comes through but it's beautiful to see history being used in such a way that it's like empowering people to get involved and and letting them know that they they like you said they they have a seat at that table so how can people be supportive like someone listening is like oh my god this is awesome Amani sounds really cool. And I want to support this organization or I want to be more supportive of minorities and aquaculture in general. What are the, what are, are there ways to do this? Are there co-ops that we can buy from? Are there, (laughs) what, what can we do to be supportive of this work? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, spread the word, you know, like we're trying to, I'm really trying to just build this organization with my team to be a global organization. Um, There's a lot of, 
women of color that are in international coastal communities that are working their tails off and they deserve to be highlighted. They deserve to be recognized. They deserve to be praised. And I think that, you know, bringing a whole community of women of color that are in commercial fisheries, that are in aquaculture, is going to be something super beautiful. So spread the word first and foremost. But also uh, we have our uh, first anniversary fundraiser that is running until the end of October. Um, and those those donations and those contributions will go directly into our internship and support programs. Um, so really getting women those opportunities, whether that's housing, transportation, paid internships, field gear, like any type of support that they will need financially, Minorities in Agriculture is striving to, to be able to cover those things. And so that there are no obstacles as far as like getting experiences. We can just say, hey, we've got everything covered. You just go to that farm, you go to that organization, get the skills and the development that you need, and we will cover the rest. We will take care of everything else. Like, you don't have to worry about that. Um, also, another way to support is, you know, if you're a uh, organization, you know, marine organization doesn't have to just be aquaculture, but just an organization that um, sees that your goals and your efforts aligns with MIA, like reach out to us. We have a partnership program, which is kind of the center of minorities in aquaculture. It's partnering with people from all over the world um, and really just to provide those opportunities to our members. Um, you know, the, those are like our internships. So we'll send people to our partners. Um, we'll think about our partners when we're doing grants on like, how do we collaborate, different projects and things like that. Um, and so our partners, you know, in that partnership program, um, you know, we it, we look at it as a long-term relationship, not something that is just for right here, right now. So um, we're, we're really like looking at how does this partnership develop over time, not just what it looks like right now. So if you're interested in that, definitely reach out to us. Um, my email is on the website um, and you can reach out and we can just, you know, talk about it. But yeah, those are, uh, follow us on uh, social media. I always forget to like do that plug. Uh, but yeah, just, you know, kind of in any way that you want to, there's an opportunity to support in any way. So we will put um, a link in all of the show notes so that people can just, um, in their podcast app, can drop in and click the link and uh, figure out how to make quick donation or get involved and uh, yeah. follow Minorities in Aquaculture um, on social media and, and keep following along with what's going on here. So um, last question, we ask it of everyone. Okay. What is your favorite historic place or site? Tough growing up on the shore. There's Ooh. a lot of beautiful places. Yeah, that is a tough one. Ooh. Mm, I would probably have to say Smith Island. I think Smith Island is, is up there. Describe um, it for people. Uh, okay, so Smith Island is, again, one of those prominent coastal, commu like coastal communities on the Chesapeake Bay. Has a ton of history, just within the history of the Chesapeake Bay in general. Um, but it's you know quickly just sinking underwater. You know it's kind of where um, you know a lot of the historical communities around here kind of all have the same ish, I would say, uh, history and heritage of of kind of what is a center point of just those communities. So um, waterways. African-Americans being in commercial fishing, people just being in commercial fishing. I just think it just has like a really cool type of vibe to it. But it's also really eerie sometimes when you go to Smith Island. So a lot of stuff is just like really just 
being susceptible to just sea level rise right now, like a lot of places on the shore. But I would say Smith Island is probably one of the ones that's like really being impacted currently right now. But it's beautiful. There's Smith Island cake. Have you had Smith Island cake before? Oh, of course I've had. Are you kidding oh, me? <laughs> you, well, so you need to describe good. that for people because people outside uh, of Maryland probably have no idea. How would you describe yeah. Smith Island cake? Oh, man. One of those like historical just yeah, foods it's in general. iconic. Yeah, it's I like they're it's like pancake thin layers of cake separated yes. normally by some type of frosting, not a lot of chocolate mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, and then there's, I don't know how many layers there are, 20 layers there's or some, something? Yeah, there's going to be like 20. I think there's like 20 to 24. I don't I feel like 24 for some reason came to my head. That's probably like so wrong. So the Islanders are probably going to like attack me on social media because yeah, I don't know. Yeah, next time you go to the island, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> that girl yeah but it's so it's so good and um it's something that originated in smith island obviously and so um i can't remember the the lady's name again they're probably gonna come at me with pitchforks but the lady that like originally did it is like still her family's still there and she's still there like doing it so it just like kind of just brings you back it just really just shows you like how our history is just so important to just our watershed in general. So it's really good. If you haven't tried it, you can, you should try it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a perfect way to end this history, food and historic places and, uh, and an Island on the Bay. Um, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. So excited about your work and we'll have to have you back again in the future to talk about all your success. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.